Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the HVMN Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Lat Mansour, a PhD in Physiology, Anatomy, and Genetics, and the Research Lead of Health, Viable, and Nutrition. And if you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and leave a review. And if you have any question, leave us a comment. And as always, we appreciate it if you can share it with a friend. Now, without further ado, let's get into this episode of HVMN Podcast. All 8 billion of us are doing metabolism at all times. This show is about learning what metabolism is, how it affects you in every way possible, from mood and mental state to performance and energy. We are all about fine-tuning the human experience for you to achieve the best self you can be. And if you are someone who loves science, curious to know how your body works and how to optimize it, then you are in the right place. This is the HVMN Podcast. Hi, welcome back to the Health via Modern Nutrition podcast, and I'm Dr. Lat Mansour, your host. Today, we have Dr. Benjamin Bickman, who earned his PhD in bioenergetics and was a postdoctoral fellow at the Duke National University in Singapore in metabolic disorders. Currently, his professional focus as a scientist and professor at Brigham Young University is to better understand the role of elevated insulin and nutrient metabolism in regulating obesity, diabetes, and dementia. In this episode, we covered how insulin resistance work, the differences between how fats are stored either via hypertrophy or hypoplasia, how we should look at macronutrients, i.e. carbs versus fats, and also looking at insulin affecting the adipose tissues as well as the brain. So this is a science-packed episode and I'm sure you will enjoy it. So stay tuned and leave us a comment if you have any feedback. Thank you. Hello, Dr. Ben Bickman. We have um, the renowned, you know, biochemistry uh, physiologist, you know, all around really a great expert in insulin resistance, metabolism and physiology. Dr. Ben Bickman, thank you and welcome to HVMN Podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I know we have had you before, but I know for the sake of our new and old listeners, could you please tell us a little bit about your background and your story um, and how, how you became, you know, the Dr. Ben Bickman that everyone refers to now. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my, yeah, my, my pleasure to, to do so. Uh, it's been a, an enjoyable journey, certainly. Uh, I'll never forget the moment when I was a master's student studying exercise physiology that I stumbled across a manuscript that had been published detailing how fat cells are not only active endocrine organ, uh, which, which to me was a revelation at the time. I'd never been taught that, although that knowledge had been out there, the idea that fat, hormones, uh, that, that fat cells secrete hormones. Um, but at the same time, in that manuscript, uh, while that was a mind-blowing revelation, I also learned that fat cells, among the many things that they secrete, the dozens of items, many of them are pro-inflammatory cytokines that will activate immune pathways throughout the body. And that was the beginning of my interest into insulin resistance because it uh, – and specifically at the time as a PhD student and then more as a postdoctoral fellow with Duke uh, and, and the lovely Duke campus in Singapore actually where I was located, studying the effects of inflammatory mediators, some of which do come from fat cells and how these pro-inflammatory signals are capable of inducing insulin resistance in tissues throughout the body. Uh, so that was the beginning of my lifelong professional love for all things insulin and metabolism and even particularly fat cells. And that interest has matured and blossomed 
um, with uh, uh, throughout the years as I've been managing my own lab now for about 13 years. Uh, but that, that certainly brings us to the present day where uh, I'm an insulin resistance scientist, uh, but a lot of people don't appreciate what that is or the relevance of it. So uh, more often than not, I just say I'm a metabolic scientist. Thank you so much for that background. And I, and I knew you, you went to the uh, Duke Singapore campus as well. And because I worked there for a year and a half, not, not the Duke campus, but Singapore. Um, I'm from Malaysia originally. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. So very close by. Uh, my background was in diabetes and cardiovascular disease. So very familiar with insulin resistance as well. I looked at um, metabolism of type 2 diabetic heart in hypoxia, measuring the difference in fatty acid oxidation versus glucose uh, glycolysis and, and random cycle. And if I switch on hypoxic genes or hypoxic response, what will happen then? So very interesting point you, you pointed out there, you know, with the manuscript that you, you stumbled across about you know, fats actually causing this inflammation and hence leading to insulin um, resistance. And there are, you know, f what I would categorize as, as two different school of thoughts here that I've heard. You know, one is the very keto, high-fat diet in, in battling and in combating the insulin resistance as well as inflammation. And then the other um, camp where I, I interviewed um, Cyrus and, and Robbie, I don't know if you know, they wrote the book Mastering Diabetes. They propose sort of high glucose, um, low fat diet to, to um, sort of uh, prevent diabetes or, 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 you know, put diabetes in remission. And when I asked about what their thoughts are around the theory around it, it's exactly that. It's, it's adipokines, it's the diacylglycerol that's, that's, you know, affecting the insulin receptors themselves. So what's your take on the well, let's, let's start basic, the pathophysiology of insulin resistance and what you have found in your research. And then we can go deeply, uh, deeper into the different macronutrients and what their roles are in the insulin, resi insulin, res insulin resistance um, pathophysiology. Yeah, yeah. So briefly, I would just define it. Uh, insulin resistance is a state where uh, it, it's, two, it's two problems in one, uh, or, or rather, uh, to use the metaphor, it's a coin and there are two sides to this coin. Uh, on one side of the coin is the phenomenon that we're referring to as insulin resistance. It's the namesake problem, that the hormone insulin isn't working properly at certain cells of the body. That's very, very important to understand, that it is not a global phenomenon. Some cells are as responsive to insulin as ever, even though we're saying that the body is insulin resistant. It is not a, a universal effect. Some cells aren't responding as well to insulin. But then on the other side of the coin is the whole body phenomenon. You know, the, the definition started at the cellular level. Now it's at the whole organism level, which is hyperinsulinemia. There is no such thing as insulin resistance without elevated insulin. It, it simply doesn't happen. There's no context, whether it's pathological or physiological, where you have insulin resistance without elevated insulin. So that's insulin resistance. And then the, 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 the relevance of it, uh, it's almost, you know, I, I will, maybe I won't get into that yet. Uh, maybe we, we'll get there later if we get there at all, uh, how it impacts, you know, virtually every chronic disease. You're invoking uh, some very important ideas uh, which touch on the etiology, you know, where does insulin resistance come from? And that is, of course, where things get contentious, uh, where there are very strong um, thoughts on one side or the other. I would emphasize that 
this is my my actual uh, if I can kind of claim any authority here I've done these experiments on cells and animals um, at, right at the me uh, mechanistic level the reason I've used cells and animals as models and not human models is so that we can in fact extract tissues freely and study the biochemistry within these tissues and and so anyway just to put that out there that I can speak with a high degree of authority I'm actually conducting and publishing these results uh, so it, it, I appreciate the sentiment of well what's the best strategy is the best strategy to be a low carbohydrate diet or is the best strategy to be a low fat diet um, it all comes down to the fat cell in my view uh, and I, I can I'll explain this briefly but um, people can gain fat through two different processes um, in, indeed, one of the reasons I and other scientists like me were invited to come to Duke NUS in Singapore was because of the government of Singapore's interest in some of the disparity across the primary ethnicities in Singapore, where they would look – and this has been well documented uh, – where you have Chinese Singaporeans, you know, kind of the primary ethnicity in, in uh, southeast in, – in Singapore, and then you have – even indeed, you have Malaysian uh, Singaporeans, Malaysians, kind of the indigenous population there. And then you have Asian Indians, and then you have Caucasian kind of European um, ethnicities. And all four of those ethnicities are, the, are, are predominant within the country of Singapore. And they noticed, and others have as well, that as if all four of these – if you had four men – of Chinese descent, you know, kind of Chinese Singaporean, four men, Chinese, Malaysian, Indian, Asian Indian, and Caucasian, and they were all gaining fat at the exact same rate. Different ethnicities, like they all gain five pounds, then 10 pounds, and 15 pounds. Who begins to become sicker the soonest? And as, as it happens to be, Chinese ethnicity, Chinese Singaporeans would develop insulin resistance, then hypertension, then type 2 diabetes at a lower body fat. And then it kind of spread out across the, the ethnicities. And it is accounted for in large part due to how is the person storing fat. Now, I'm not saying how much fat they're storing. I'm not saying even, even where they store, as much as we focus on visceral fat, and that sentiment isn't without va a value. But how do you store fat? And by that I mean, are you storing fat through a process of every individual fat cell growing through a process called hypertrophy? Or are you storing fat through a process called hyperplasia, which is when the fat cells may get modestly larger, but then they simply recruit new fat cells. So basically the fat cells begin to multiply. The latter, hyperplastic fat storage, is a very healthy way to store fat. Uh, because those fat cells stay very anti-inflammatory and they stay very insulin sensitive. In contrast, if an individual is gaining fat mass because the size of their fat cells changing, which is the majority of people around the world, particularly in you know across ethnicities, this this phenomenon is known to occur. People will have genetic polymorphisms that will predispose them to hypertrophic fat storage. But regardless, across the board. Uh, well over 80% of all people that are overweight or obese have gotten to that point due to hypertrophy of the adipose uh, of the adipocytes. And as a fat cell begins to uh, hypertrophy, it can get to a point that is 10 times bigger than at its native state. 
I know of no other example of such massive cellular growth in any tissue in the body where a cell can grow 10 times beyond its native state. But as that happens, um, you have the fat cell becoming insulin resistant to try to prevent further growth because, and then it will start leaking free fatty acids even though insulin levels are high, trying to tell it to maintain those fats. And at the same time, as the cell's undergoing such massive hypertrophy, it becomes uh, very pro-inflammatory due to hypoxia. You mentioned hypoxia earlier, something you've looked at. As the adipocyte becomes hypoxic, it begins secreting a whole battery of pro-inflammatory cytokines because some of them will help promote new blood vessel growth. And so it's the fat cell's effort to try to correct its hypoxia. The combination of these two things, the, of all of them rather, the high insulin, which always abounds in insulin resistance and the high free fatty acids and the high pro-inflammatory cytokines will induce the synthesis of myriad um, lipid uh, molecules within a cell that antagonize the insulin signaling cascade. You had mentioned diacylglycerol. Yes, DAGs do antagonize the insulin cascade. I have conducted research that has found that. I would argue that the more relevant lipid is a lipid called ceramides, um, uh, but they are both are lipid products. They're both a type of fat within the cell. And it's important to note that there are thousands of different types of fat within every single cell of the body. However, this is where some people, I believe, have gone astray where they will look at the fact that you have these lipid molecules accumulating in a cell and that they are directly antagonizing the insulin cascade, or in other words, directly causing the insulin resistance. And then some say, so you shouldn't eat fat. Right. Um, because fat is the cause to this product. Yeah, that's right. right. And um, that is where I think uh, we've, uh, things just got overly simplistic far too quickly because it doesn't reflect the fact that eating fat does not lead to an increase in, flat, uh, in fat in, within the blood. I indeed, I, in fact, I think every single paper that's ever been published in humans has found conclusively that on a low-carb diet, triglycerides plummet. And triglycerides are the primary movement of fat through the blood. Overwhelmingly, I mean, it's not even close. If you want to talk about how much fat is in the blood, it's triglycerides that you're measuring. Mm -hmm. And literally every single study that's ever been done, when a human adopts a low-carb diet, triglycerides plummet. And the only thing that goes up is LDL. That, yeah, it, if it even does at all, LDL will go up a little or it doesn't change at all. Well, it's not LDL that we care about. It's the triglycerides that we care about. And triglycerides can be carried on LDL. But that's not the same as measuring LDL, you know, the lipoprotein. It's triglycerides that are carrying these fatty acids that are going to get deposited into tissues. And so to me, the whole people can embrace this idea of fats do matter within the cell, but then they sort of lose the thinking when it says, but how does it get there? And what are the stimuli? Because even if we have fats available to a cell, we must have a stimulus to induce the synthesis of those antagonistic fats. And I would rely much more on ceramides um, as the primary antagonist, um, antagonistic lipid here. Well, ceramides don't just spontaneously get created. There must be a stimulus. And overwhelmingly, that is, that is the, uh, the activation of a pro-inflammatory pathway. Now, now, having said all this, let me just finish that sentiment um, by, by coming back to the hypertrophic fat cell. If the hypertrophic fat cell is 
and I believe strongly that it is, the primary uh, origin of insulin resistance within the body, the question is, how best can we shrink the fat cell? Well, there are two ways. And this is where we can all kind of get along, um, although I still think one strategy is better than the other. Um, and that is through either low, in, uh, low energy or low insulin. Now, the low energy approach is the classic anti-fat, anti-calorie kind of approach because the moment someone starts cutting fat or goes on to a, a plant-based diet, they're absolutely going to be low calorie. That just comes with it, um, and, and that's fine. Um, they would say it's because we're lowering fats and we're lowering energy, and that will affect it. I mean, a fat cell can't stay big in the absence of sufficient calories to feed it. It has to shrink. But a confounding variable with literally every single paper that's ever been published that looks at a low-calorie diet is if calories come down, so does insulin. You cannot pull the two apart. And so even though people are invoking the laws of thermodynamics and calories in, calories out, I'm sitting to the side thinking, yeah, calories matter, but you also can't help but bring in the relevance of low insulin. Right. Because in, in the presence of low in, – in the absence of insulin or rather in low insulin states, a fat cell cannot maintain its size. Even if there is an abundant of calories, and the most powerful example of this is someone with type 1 diabetes. If a type 1 diabetic decides to just put that syringe of insulin on the shelf and not inject it, they can eat an unlimited number of calories. I'm being a little dramatic. They can eat four or 5,000 calories in a day, and they're losing weight minute over minute over minute. You, you, it, is, it is impossible in any organism from, from fruit flies to humans and all of the organisms in between. You cannot make a fat cell grow unless insulin is elevated. And in contrast, if insulin is low, you can't make it stay big. It must shrink. And, and again, the untreated type 1 diabetic is a perfect example. They're wasting away even though they're eating thousands of calories a day. So together, those strategies both have value. And, right. and I would be diplomatic about it and say, yep, a low-energy, low-fat approach will work because it's low-energy and it's low-insulin. Alternatively, rather than kind of being a little hungry all the time and risking – nutrient deprivation by avoiding nutrient-rich animal-sourced foods, you could just take the low-insulin approach. Now you don't have to count calories. You don't have to worry about energy coming in. If you're avoiding the most insulin-spiking nutrients, then, then you can enjoy everything else abundantly. Which will point towards the keto diet or low-carb diet. Yeah. There are so there's so much to unpack here. Um, just for the sake of our listeners as well, when you were talking about the fat cells and hypoxia, which means low oxygen environment, right? Um, I mean, I know I know why, but I would like you to explain why did you say these fat cells are prone to being in an hypo in a hypoxic environment and trigger those kind of cascades? Yeah, yeah. So um, one of the the simple features of anatomy, you know, cellular anatomy and biology is that a cell must be within just micrometers of a capillary. And, you know, and the capillary being all, all, of course, very familiar all to you. Capillary, the capillary is the blood vessel where things actually are moving in and out. Arteries, nothing's moving in and out of an artery. Vein, nothing's moving in and out of a vein. It's the capillaries between arteries and between veins where you actually have Gases coming in or out, you know, oxygen's going out into the cells, CO2's coming into the blood to remove the CO2. We're exchanging metabolites. 
And as the fat cells are getting 10 times their normal size, they simply are pushing each other further and further away from the capillaries. And so the poor fat cell begins to be starved for oxygen and just starts belching out these, this whole you know, profile of cytokines. Because some of them, like VEGF, vascular endothelial growth factor, is considered a cytokine, and it will basically be a, a trail of breadcrumbs that come from a hypertrophic fat cell to a capillary. The capillary will see those breadcrumbs and follow the trail back by budding off a new little capillary to, to oxygenate those cells because it is not ideal to have cells dying through hypoxia. That becomes very messy, it potentially even necrotic. So it, it's interesting to go back to the hypertrophic fat cell because both of its pathological um, pathology-inducing mechanisms, becoming insulin-resistant to prevent further growth and, and becoming hypoxic to prevent death, are in fact its own efforts to ensure its own survival. It's just particularly bad luck that both of those together end up creating the perfectly harmful environment throughout the body, altering the metabolic milieu in such a way that it begins promoting insulin resistance everywhere else. Yeah, that's super interesting. And, you know, it brings me back all the way back to biochemistry, you know, lessons. We talk about VEGF and inducing angiogenesis and really promoting the blood vessels growth. And in terms of your study in Singapore, because, you know, this is very relevant to me because my mom is, is ch of Chinese descent in, in Malaysia and my dad is Malay. So I'm half Malay, half Chinese. So obviously the population of, of study that you did was, you know, it, it, it pertains to me. It, it really relates to my background as well. And you found that the Chinese ethnicity, they develop insulin resistance, diabetes and all that at a much lower body fat content. So does that mean they are more, t they are, they are more likely to store fat via hypertrophy of the fat cells? Yeah, 100%. Is, is this purely driven by genetics? Yeah, yeah wonderful question. Um, yeah, so there's interesting things here. I want to answer that question explicitly, but I want to take one step back too. Um, it's, it's, it's very important to note that if an individual is basically forced into hypertrophic fat growth, it, it paradoxically means they will stop gaining fat at a lower level because you, you do physically reach the limits of what fat can be stored in fat cells. This is why it would be it's, when I was in Singapore, it would be very, very uncommon to see a Chinese Singaporean man who would be considered really overweight or obese. He would at most be kind of chubby. You know, at most he'd be moderately overweight. And then you look at, say, a Caucasian man, and he could get fantastically fat. It, we know that there are genetic polymorphisms in, the gene, uh, in, in a gene regulator called PPAR gamma. And this is not unique to Chinese ethnicity. To varying degrees, it, it, even within ethnicities, people will have a greater or lower kind of uh, functioning amount of PPAR gamma. With, again, within every ethnicity, there are exceptions to this. But the lower um, someone has of a kind of functioning PPAR gamma, the more limited they are in the number of fat cells they, they can make. And thus, you're forcing it into this hypertrophic uh, phenotype. And again, that would mean fat mass uh, expansion is is limited. In contrast, if someone and and somewhat par uh, paradoxically, if someone tends to gain fat through hyperplasia because of an active and aggressive PPAR gamma, these are people who can get fantastically overweight and obese, and yet 
and continue to gain weight and yet be metabolically okay. I'm not going to say metabolically healthy, but their insulin resistance can be quite low. Their blood pressure quite low. Um, you know, very cardio metabolically quite healthy because they're storing fat where they should in fat cells and the fat cells are insulin sensitive and normoxic you know they have, they have normal um oxygen uh, access and so it's only these instances when it's hypertrophic where again paradoxically they stop gaining weight and that's when a lot of the problems start happening so um yeah so we know that it, it is partly genetic to answer the question um, through polymorphisms and PPAR gamma, but we also know that there are dietary con uh, contributors. Um, on one hand, uh, hyperinsulinemia itself is has been shown to uh, promote a, a relatively greater degree of hypertrophy. Uh, it can stimulate both, frankly, but it will tend to do a little more hypertrophy than hyperplasia because hyperplasia uh, hyperplasia is based on other variables as well. Um, uh, so one, hyperinsulinemia, and two, um, the presence of linoleic acid. Linoleic acid, one of its metabolites is an aldehyde called 4-HNE, and 4-HNE has been shown to inhibit adipogenesis or the synthesis of new fat cells, and it, that thus leaves the fat cell only with the option of hypertrophy. And this is seed oil we're talking about. That's right, yep, and, and that becomes relevant within particular cultures throughout Asia, I, I don't ever like to speak in generalities, but where there is such a high cooking with seed oils. Um, this is particularly problematic in India, which leads the world in the diabetic population, um, where uh, it, it is so almost purely based on, on seed oils as the cooking oil. But in Asia, um, these seed oils are used uh, much more readily, as much as we use them in the West as well, and we certainly do. Um, they are the leading, they're the number one, soybean oil is the number one consumed fat within the United States. It's even worse uh, uh, throughout Asia. And so that also has been shown to contribute to a greater tendency towards hypertrophy. So yes, genetics, absolutely, across ethnicities and within ethnicities. And then globally, um, we compound this genetic tendency with these seed oils that are metabolized into products that force fat cells into hypertrophy. So genetics, you know, PPAR gamma, which is a transcription transcription factor that affects the DNA itself and plays a very, very big role in fatty acid oxidation and also storage. Um, and you have hyperinsulinemia. And lastly, um, the, 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 the dangers of seed oil. So yeah, thank you so much for that. Um, now, when it comes to... Um, when you were talking about carbs and fats and and how lowering one or the other is essentially lowering calories, um, lowering insulin, and then you know that in and of itself sort of rectify the either hyperplasia or hypertrophy of the fat cells, and therefore sort of answering the question of how can we reduce inflammation, how can we reduce insulin resistance. Now that's all good and well. Like from what I can take from that explanation if I want to trace back the opposite, which is the cause of it, is essentially, you spoke a little bit about, about them uh, earlier. So is it the excessive, excessive um, calories to begin with? It's not necessarily the fat intake or the carb intake, but it's overall 
like in one day, you are taking in a lot of carbs, a lot of fats, and therefore you are forcing your body to essentially you know, crank up the insulin as an anabolic hormone in order to store all these substrates because there's nowhere to go. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to, to frame this. Uh, a fat cell can only grow if those two conditions are met. There must be sufficient energy to, fu to, to fuel the growth that insulin is demanding. That is so important. And that's, it's the latter part that everyone misses, which is why I beat that drum so hard. I don't want what – I, what I regret is that someone would think that Ben only believes uh, obesity and fat cell growth is a result of just insulin. I, I don't. I just beat that drum louder because everyone else is only beating the calories drum. And they would say it's purely calories. Well, I, I have fat cells growing in my lab right now, right across the hallway, literally right now. And we could have these fat cells incubated in a culture, in, in a media that is loaded with energy. There's fats and there's glucose, in, which are the two um, you know, substrates that a fat cell will use to get bigger, um, turning the glucose very readily into fats, which is something a fat cell does very, very well and very easily. So the fat cells can be bathed, literally bathed in all of these, in, all of these calories, and they stay small. They will not, they do not know what to do with that energy until insulin tells them what to do. So we start putting insulin into that culture media, and now the fat cells can start to grow. This is reflected in the human body. And again, I mentioned that extreme example of an untreated type 1 diabetic. An untreated type 1 diabetic can eat thousands of calories in excess, and they cannot prevent fat loss. In fact, this phenomenon is so tragically obvious that some type 1 diabetics will develop a kind of a, a mixed sort of eating disorder where that is called diabulimia or diarexia well they have where, where they have learned they can eat whatever they want and if they just skip their insulin injection they can be as thin as they want now there are disastrous consequences um, that come from that but on the outside they're, they can be as slender as they want by just simply skipping their insulin injection, all while eating an unlimited amount of food. Uh, so you know, backing that up again, both of these pressures must be present. You must have sufficient calories to fuel the growth that insulin is demanding. You simply cannot have fat growth without, the, now, with, with, without both of them. Because if we had a situation where calories were low but insulin were high, was, was high, the person would simply die. Um, because if the, in the high insulin, in the absence of nutrients coming in, glucose bottoms out, ketones would bottom out, and the brain would starve and they would go unconscious. That, so it's incompatible. So that study can't be done. Um, but we can push it the other way by focusing on, say, fat. There is a case study that has been published, and there are numerous other clinical studies that, that touch on this, where the person was deliberately eating hypercaloric. This is Sam Feltham's work from the UK, um, one of the organizers of the PHC um, UK kind of entity, uh, which I'm very, very friendly with, and I'm very much an advocate of what they do. Sam published this case study of deliberately eating hypercaloric, either really, really high carb, low fat, or high fat, low carb, and it was he gained significantly less weight when he was hypercaloric, when it was high fat, um, and low carb because insulin is low. And there, and now, now a thermodynamic purist would say that's impossible. 
It is not if you get your head out of the textbook and think about this because when insulin is low, and this touches on more work from my own lab, when insulin is low, metabolic rate goes up by about 300 calories a day. So you have a little bit of metabolic wiggle room here. In addition to that, when insulin is low, you are now making a lot of ketones. And ketones are energetic molecules that have a caloric equivalent roughly comparable to glucose. That is to say it's about four calories-ish. Now you are literally dumping these molecules from your breath and from your urine. These are energetic molecules that, based on the pure laws of thermodynamics, we would say they needed to be stored or burned. Well, not if they're just wasted. They're just wasted from the body. And that can be to the tune of hundreds of calories as well. So now we have an individual who's eating an abundance of calories, um, indeed in excess in the case of Sam Felton's case study, and he is not gaining weight from that excess of calories because in the absence of insulin, the body can't store fat. Now, his insulin wasn't absent, but it was very, very low because he wasn't stimulating it with starches and sugars. And so his body had compensatory mechanisms. It accelerated metabolic rate, and it was wasting calories in the form of ketone excretion through the breath and the urine. Wow, this is super interesting because as you were talking, something dawned on to me as to what I've experienced with my family growing up because my family, especially my mom's side, has a very high prevalence of obesity and diabetes. So a lot of my relatives, they were, you know, for as long as I knew them, they were overweight, they were obese, and then they'll develop type 2 diabetes. But one thing I did not understand is that at late stage diabetes, they started losing weight. They started losing weight like crazy. They were just skinny bones and skin. And now it makes sense because they reached the point where their pancreatic beta cells are not secreting enough insulin anymore. And they go from a hyperinsulinemia state or hyperinsulinemic state into hypoinsulinemic state where they can't put on fat anymore and then the body reverses. But at that time, all those damages throughout those years have already been done. And therefore, they're going through neuropathy. They're going through, you know, uh, nephropathy. Uh, kidney failures and organ failures, amputation and all of that, it was a bit too late. So it makes a lot of sense now because I remember asking myself, you know, because we always knew or we always were taught, you know, from a layman's point of view before I even studied science, is that all oh, diabetes is a overweight problem. It's a, you know, people who are fat would develop diabetes. And I was like, then why do they get worse? And then they got skinnier, you know? Um, and then now that we learn about hormones, and that's the fascinating thing about human metabolism and physiology is that nothing works linearly. Nothing works in and of itself um, on their own. Everything is related, is counterbalanced, and it's, it's very much run by homeostatic mechanisms where your body will try to balance it and prioritize survival, survivability. But sometimes, unfortunately, the survivability leads to more adverse effects that leads to a change uh, or a change of um, um, cascade of events that leads to even more um, adverse effects that, that really makes your health deteriorate. Yeah, well said. In fact, I, I, I'm particularly enthusiastic about how you stated that because I teach pathophysiology as a professor. And there are, it's not uncommon for me to get a question from a student saying, you know, Dr. Bickman, why is the liver responding this way? And they're attempting to try to understand um, uh, the homeostatic reason. 
And when it comes to disease, it's a failure of homeostasis. Uh, it's when it's when the body can't get back to its to a, to a, a healthy state because of the nature of the insult or the failure of the organ or whatever it may be. Uh, but but it is it is when the body, as you said it, uh, when when the, there there is no good compensatory mechanism. Um, well, I, I guess it's maybe better, like in the case of the fat cell, it's better than the tissue going necrotic. But there, it's like you're trading one problem. You're, you're picking the lesser of two evils, but they're both bad outcomes. Yeah, and, and you're not giving your body the chance to pick a better choice because as you are ingesting all these excess calories, ingesting all the seed oils, causing all the damage, as you said, increase of the insult of the stimulus, you are essentially not giving your body any choice. Um, so it has to pick one of the better uh, of the two evils. So, so that itself, it's, it's, I think a lot of people need to understand it's not as simplified as they make out to be. And there are more things and more nuance around metabolism, hormonal balance, um, nutrient metabolization, uh, nutrient utilization that we need to, to talk about and learn about. So speaking of insulin, what does insulin do to brown adipose tissue versus like white adipose tissue? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this was an area of research that my lab started in part because of a phenomenon I just said, which is when insulin is low, metabolic rate goes up. Um, I found that I just have to mention these scientists um, because it's, it's, they, they were so uh, fundamental to understanding of of metabolism, and that's Elliot P. Joslin and Francis Benedict. These were scientists who were very, very active 100 years ago, um, and they found in type 1 diabetes, Elliot Joslin was the famous endocrinologist, and he is famous. He deserves to be mentioned. And then working with Francis Benedict, um, for whom uh, uh, we, we name uh, maybe one of the most commonly used metabolic equations to this day, the Benedict equation, to discover to, to determine metabolic rate in people. They were legends, uh, and so I, I'm, I want to mention them just as a point of history. I found their work, and it was that observation that metabolic rate was about 20% higher than it should be in someone who had type 1 diabetes. And then in the 80s, followed up decades later, another group found that when you gave the untreated type 1 diabetic, so first of all, they confirmed the work of Elliot, uh, of Joslin and Benedict from decades earlier, that metabolic rate was too high in someone who lacked insulin. And then the very minute they started giving them insulin, literally minute over minute in this study in the 80s, metabolic rate just dropped, 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 about 20% until it got to where it should have been based on the size of that person, because metabolic rate is generally determined by the size of the body. <clears throat> so my lab wondered about how this might affect fat tissue. Fat tissue is primarily white adipose tissue. That is the tissue that we pinch and jiggle, for example. Um, and it is very whitish because of how much fat is in it. Like it looks like a little blob of, you know, coconut oil or, you know, Crisco or something. And to put it in perspective, where you have a ribeye, you have the marbling, that's fat. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. Yep. So we conducted this study. It was a very powerful study because we used fat cells and rodents and humans. We had all three biomedical models that we were using. Uh, so taking fat biopsies from the bellies of humans that were in and out of ketosis to kind of compare it. So, so we, I'm kind of combining two separate studies here because I have to, I mentioned ketones, even though you asked about insulin and, you know, we can't really tease the two apart, but no. in summary, what we found was that when insulin was elevated, it didn't slow the metabolic rate in white fat cells because it's already very, very low. 
but it is a metabolic rate, but it did slow the metabolic rate in brown fat cells. In brown fat is a type of fat that adult humans will have interspersed throughout the thoracic cavity, throughout the chest cavity, and up into the kind of clavicular area. Um, and this is a type of fat that it has a very high metabolic rate, uh, uh, about 10 times higher than that of the white fat, comparable indeed to about muscle metabolic rate. And its purpose is just to simply create heat. It will just burn through glucose and fats all for the purpose of creating heat. So again, very high metabolic rate to do so. And we found that insulin would suppress the metabolic rate of the brown fat cells of their mitochondria. So insulin wanted brown fat to behave more like white fat. In contrast, we would did the same studies, but using now ketones as the intervention. And of course, in a normal state, ketones are only elevated if insulin is low due to the power of insulin to inhibit ketogenesis. So when insulin is low, ketogenesis is disinhibited, and now it's burning fat. We're burning a lot of fat, making a lot of ketones from it. Directly, as their own signaling molecule, ketones didn't really change brown fat. That was already a high metabolic rate but it significantly increased the metabolic rate of the white fat cells make about, by about three times um, that we found in, in, in all, across all cell models, including human cells. That, so in other words, whereas insulin was making brown fat behave more like white fat, uh, ketones are directly doing the opposite, um, where ketones are making white fat behave a little bit more like brown fat, or what we would call beige fat. That's a process called beiging. Where, where they're not really brown fat cells, but they're kind of like it. And they are, in fact, brown. Um, they're very, very darkly pigmented. Likely, uh, it's due to the presence, the very high presence of mitochondria, which have a distinct color. And so it gives the fat cell a very distinct color, um, reflective of the mitochondria. So in, in some, we saw these differential effects um, that, that we submit is part of uh, part of the changes in metabolic rate that we do see when insulin levels are high or low. When insulin is up, it slows whole body metabolic rate, perhaps in part because of what it does to brown fat metabolic rate. And then in contrast, when insulin is low and ketones are high, we, we do see an increase in metabolic rate. And that could be in part due to what we see at activating metabolic rate in fat tissue. I would like to take this opportunity to acknowledge our sponsors of this show, Ketone IQ, the best exogenous ketone you can take to elevate your blood ketone levels. I personally take it every day before a podcast to wire my brain up, before and after my workout to really feel my body. So give yourself a chance, take a shot, and you will feel the difference within minutes. So head over to hvmn.com and use the code HVMNPOD20, that is HVMNPOD20, for 20% off your purchase, and enjoy your ketone IQ, and give your brain the perfect fuel. Now, my question to you is that, can this phenomenon happen if you have high insulin and high ketones, i.e. when you take in exogenous ketones? Because you mentioned the low, it makes perfect sense when you're low on insulin, you are driving up the ketogenesis from your liver, you're producing ketones from the fat, and then ketones, you know, signals the fat cells to increase metabolism. Now that is something that I, I just learned today and it's super interesting because, you know, we get a lot of questions where, okay, if I'm on ketogenic diet, do I increase, you know, my fat metabolism? Yeah, obviously, you know, that, that has been shown, but mechanistically how you explain it was really great. Um, but then there is also the question is that if I drink ketones, 
will I increase fat metabolism? So I'll, I'll leave it to you to answer that one. Yeah. In fact, I love that you're asking this because I actually, when I first got in touch with Jeff, the first time I was on the podcast, I proposed doing this study in humans. And I said, Jeff, give me some ketone ester, send it to me, and I'll do these studies and we'll come to an arrangement. And we just weren't able to make it happen. But maybe we'll, you and I will make this happen. We'll revisit this because we wanted, we wanted to determine in humans, take a fat biopsy from the human, quantify all the mitochondrial outcomes, and then give them this ketone ester for, say, a week or whatever, have them come in again, repeat the test, and then what happens? So now I'm not asking your question. I'm just planting the seed for you guys to help me do a future. No, I, th I think that's great. I think, I think what happened in the past was that ketone ester, one of the main reasons why we switched to ketone IQ right now, I don't know if you know about this, um, as of early last year, January 2022, we are selling ketone IQ, which main, whose main ingredient is R13-butanediol. So it's no longer the ketone ester. It is a chirally pure R13-butanediol, which has comparable efficiency because we saw a you know increase in blood ketone levels within half an hour, but it continues rising up to two to three hours. And then if you're at rest, it stays up to six hours above one millimolar. The uh, good thing is it's cheaper to produce. So now it's $4 per 10 grams. Um, it tastes better. Um, so people who are using it for therapeutic users, when they have to take it every day, it's more easily, you know, oh, they find it easier to, to stomach yeah. it. And then the third point is the um, blood acidity. Because ketone ester, half of it is BHB and the other half is butanediol half of it goes straight into your blood and really spike your acidity, your blood acidity up. Whereas this one is R13-butanediol. It's mainly gate-kept by your liver because your liver has to convert butanediol to BHB. Therefore, what we have seen is that even at higher dose, up to one gram per kilogram of body weight, it does not increase blood BHB higher than 2.5. So it literally stays there after 0.5 gram per kilogram. It basically stays. That's where the, the highest we could, we could get it. Because... You know, what I would theorize is that because your liver is getting signals from the rest of your body saying that why do you need that high of a ketones when you have all these substrates available? So I'm going to have a slow release system where you still have your butane dial in the body, but then over a long time, you will get access to these BHB in due time. That's brilliant. Uh, well, I, I love it. I'm, I'm really glad to know that. I, I didn't know that, but that's a brilliant explanation. So the, to come back to the question... Um, what would happen? I, I would. I don't know. Um, I would speculate that they would undo each other. Um, that uh, and, and where where insulin so clearly has an inhibitory effect on this, ketones so so clearly have an activating effect. I, I suspect strongly that it would just be inert. Um, now, I would also suggest that that's the worst way to take a ketone supplement. If someone's taking the ketone IQ, the HVMN um, source of ketones here, or you know what becomes ketone. I would suggest that it not be consumed with something that will also spike insulin. That to me, that uh, high ketone and high insulin is, is I don't want to sound silly here, but it is unnatural. Those two should not be elevated at the same time. Now, I'm not saying unnatural like in a kind of weird, hippy-dippy universe, universe kind of silliness way. I mean, biochemically, you would never get a situation where it's high ketone and high insulin. Uh, similarly, you wouldn't have a situation where it's low insulin and low ketone, except for the final moments of starvation, perhaps. Um, it should be one or the other. Mm -hmm. and, and so I bet they would mitigate or offset each other, but also 
don't do it. You know, don't take don't take the the, uh, the ketone IQ while you're enjoying a bagel. Don't wash the bagel down with with the with the drink. Now I'm going to challenge that because there are certain use case or certain circumstance where one can use that. So in a lot of exogenous ketones studies, especially with regards to performance, they are being taken with carbohydrate. Okay, now hold on though. <laughs> I didn't know we were going to talk about athletics. <laughs> in that case, I would completely be fine with it. Yeah, yeah. It, truly, uh, not that I know. I don't want to stop you from talking, but if I knew we were going to talk about Tour de France or whatever, <laughs> that that's a game changer. Because in that case, now you're just getting two straight sources of energy into the body, and insulin is antithetical to exercise. There are numerous counter-regulatory um, influences that are helping keep insulin low during exercise, and I would suspect. We, well, we know. The insulin effect to uh, glucose load during exercise is in enormously blunted because, in part, the muscle simply doesn't need the insulin to pull in the glucose. It has an insulin-independent mechanism when it's contracting. So you, you, you tricked me a little. If I knew <laughs> we were talking about exercise, I would have changed my answer. <laughs> no, no, all, all good. I mean, you know, again, like I, all we want to do is really spread the knowledge and the science and the transparency around what the data shows. Um, and I think you're right. If you know you are, that's why I tell people: if you're taking exogenous ketones to sort of help you improve your metabolic health, for example, but then you're also taking five thousand calories a day, you're taking high, hyper, like palatable, super processed carbs, then it may not help you because you know, the, like you said, ketones they are also calories; they are a source of energy. So that excess of energy will eventually go into your storage. And again, we are going back to that fat hypertrophy, hyperplasia um, scenario where you are creating inflammatory response and also causing insulin resistance. But if you are going to burn all these fuel anyway, especially, especially for athletics and performance, you are having access to two different fuels. The hybrid fuel system it has been shown to um, have glycogen sparing effect. And on top of that, it has been shown to stimulate leucine-mediated mTOR activation post-exercise, which helps uh, recovery probably. Yep, absolutely. So, so that's, that's that. Um, so yes, um, I would love to, you know, and this, you know, it's going to go on record. I would love to uh, collaborate with you on a project, on a study, looking at the effects of exogenous ketones, if it can directly affect white, uh, white, adipose tissue and increase metabolism because that having that question answered will have so much more applicability when it comes to both research as well as real life applications. Well said. I couldn't say so, better myself. <laughs> so, okay, we've covered the fat. So let's cover the brain. So we know ketones are the brain preferred fuel. But then, as you said, ketones and insulin, they're always interrelated. What is the so-called insulin-induced uh, brain alterations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, the brain is, you've, uh, we've greased the skids a little bit here with this answer by earlier mentioning, I think we talked about GLUT4, where we have a glucose transporter that facilitates the uptake of glucose into tissue, and it does so in response to insulin. Well, brain regions, there are a lot of them, and they're different, but GLUT4 is present in the hippocampus and other sites, hypothalamus and other areas as well. And, and that means that it plays some part in the brain getting its glucose as energy. 
during insulin resistance, and this, I know you've had Chris Palmer on recently, and of course he speaks to this much more uh, informed than, than I can. And I will speak to what I know in, in part born from what we've studied and published from my lab, um, where, where we know that in dementia, this is some work from my lab, uh, we actually studied the hippocampal tissue from people who died with and without Alzheimer's. We had access to this um, tissue bank of, of tissue donors. And, and the people who died with confirmed Alzheimer's disease had lower levels of virtually every gene involved in glycolysis within the hippocampus compared to the non-Alzheimer's um, patients um, or tissue. In contrast, ketone expression, or the expression rather of the ketolytic enzymes were all totally normal. So this was reflecting almost to a fundamental level what, what Stephen Cunane had found in Eastern Canada at Sherbrooke University, where he has documented the de and quantified the degree to which in cognitive decline, um, it's glucose metabolism that is compromised, whereas ketone metabolism is perfectly maintained. And, and Chris very eloquently speaks to this sort of idea of, of a brain um, hypometabolism or the, the kind of hungry brain um, as, as the source of dementia and numerous other um, neurological pathologies. But the particular problem in, in this day and age and in this um, metabolic environment that we find ourselves in is... Uh, where, where people have insulin resistance, and that is the single most common health disorder worldwide, from Southeast Asia to the Middle East to the West and across Europe. Um, when someone is insulin resistant, they have high levels of insulin. And the combination is particularly pathological at the brain, where the brain is becoming insulin resistant, meaning it has a harder time getting glucose in to feed itself. And then you would say, well, brain, just switch over to ketone. Just use the ketone for fuel. But at the same time, the body has hyperinsulinemia, which is inhibiting ketogenesis. And so it's like this bizarre metabolic version of this, ancient, this old poem, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner is this sea-stranded sailor who is his, he's dying through thirst, and he bemoans the fact that there's water, water everywhere, nor not a drop to drink. Well, this is the brain saying, glucose, glucose everywhere, but none of it is for me. I can't use it because I'm insulin resistant. And so please throw me a life raft in the form of ketones. But no, the insulin level won't allow the ketone to be produced. And as you stated perfectly, if the brain prefers any fuel, it very clearly prefers ketones. The moment ketones start hitting the bloodstream, and I, let me just elaborate on this for just a second so that everyone can appreciate this. Uh, a normal fasting person, if they fast for 24 hours or, or 36 hours, uh, glucose levels will be around 4.5 millimolar-ish. Ketone levels may be at around 1, maybe maybe 1.5 millimolar, depending on the person. I'm being a little generous. Even then, the brain is using most of its energy from ketones. Even though the ketones are still less than half, maybe a third of what the glucose levels are, it's using most of its energy from ketones. More than half of it is now coming from ketone. So don't tell me that the brain's preferred fuel is glucose. What an asinine, ridiculous, uninformed opinion. We know that if the brain prefers ketones. Again, the moment the ketones hit the blood, the brain starts taking them up greedily to the point that it will, it will replace it as it, uh, it will replace glucose as its main fuel. So that's the particular 
tragedy of dementia and other brain disorders, as, as Chris has alluded to, including migraines and seizures and bipolar disorders, et cetera, the, among all of the differences, the one thing they have in common is that they all have a quantified brain glucose hypometabolism, uh, and the brain's going hungry, in other words. So this is where I get particularly enthusiastic with exogenous ketones, is the incredible amount of research that's coming out supporting its role as a, a, not only a viable fuel for the brain, but indeed a, a beneficial fuel source and signaling molecule, um, where that to me is the strongest, you know, I want to contribute to the role of exogenous ketones in, you know, general metabolic health and fat tissue physiology or biology. And that will all be a new growing area of research. But what is very established is that, that ketones are such a viable fuel for the brain. And I would say, especially in someone who has insulin resistance, where your high insulin levels are preventing you from getting into ketosis very readily, which we know happens, all the more reason to find some mechanism to boost those ketones. And the fact is an, an exogenous ketone is a very effective way to do it. Absolutely. And that's why a lot of researchers who are in this area of research have started buying ketone IQ from us and run their studies on it. And, you know, I have a theory, Ben, um, what Jonathan Little has shown in, in University of British Columbia, he showed that acutely exogenous ketones across the board, different exogenous ketones, ketone ester, ketone IQ, um, even with uh, BHB and BDO mix, they all decrease glucose in your blood acutely with no effect on insulin. What that's telling me is that Yes, your body is using the ketones, it's preferring the ketones as, as fuel, but at the same time, your body is also sending signal to your liver, perhaps slowing down gluconeogenesis, saying that, hey, you don't need this glucose anymore because you've got better source of fuel. And then even though in that study acutely, it didn't affect insulin, what I would presume is that if taken over time, granted, followed by you know proper nutrition and exercise, that would have drastic effect on insulin. And then that could bridge them in, in, in compensating that brain deficiency, brain energy deficiency. And then if they want to lay off the exogenous ketones, that's fine. If they find a lifestyle that fits them, either low carb, low, low fat or whatever diet that fits them, that can make them you know, function better with these cognitive impairment, then so be it. But as a bridge, when your body is already so dysfunctional, when it comes to brain accepting glucose or brain metabolizing glucose, it's, it's a no-brainer to, you know, not take um, exogenous ketone just to see the effect because you can literally feel and see the effects within minutes. Um, so there is no harm. You don't have, it's not one of those multivitamins you have to wait, you know, 50 years to see, you know, if it works. Well, and you mentioned, I think it's important to, to revisit something you just said and put it in additional context where you talked about, I'd mentioned brain glucose hypometabolism. You just said it in, in, a, in maybe a better way, which is a brain energy deficit. It's David Ludwig's work at Harvard. He has been the leading authority on establishing the fact that when, when the brain has lower access to energy, it stimulates hunger. And, and so if the brain is the brain is unique among high metabolic rate organs in that it has um, virtually no energy stored in it. It must constantly be taking in energy from the blood. So it's very subject 
to blood energy levels. And by energy, I mean all of the caloric nutrients that the brain can use, which is basically glucose and ketones. And there are other energetic molecules like fatty acids and to a much lower degree lactate. But David Ludwig's work has found that when insulin goes up, the total amount of energy available in the blood goes down. At the same time, hunger goes up. A meal, two, two groups of people, even the same group, if they eat two different meals, matched perfectly in calories, exact same number of calories. The meal that spikes the insulin the most will cause much greater hunger much sooner in the course of the day. In contrast, despite having the exact same amount of calories, if a meal does not spike insulin, the total amount of energy available in the blood, being glucose and ketones in particular with relevance to the brain, is relatively higher and hunger is much more delayed. And so even here, with the exogenous ketone, uh, it's not too much of a stretch to understand, or it's not hard to understand how someone can use this to help control appetite, because so much of what drives hunger, it, which is multifaceted, uh, admittedly, um, it, it, there's addictions and there's the satiety, you know, the signals in the stomach, stretching, etc. But part of it is driven by: Does the brain have energy? Is it sensing that energy is going down in the blood? If so, it will panic, want more energy to come in by stimulating hunger. But if the brain is fed, then satiety will be better. And I can double down on that and, and even add onto that, that a ketone acid has shown to decrease ghrelin um, in studies in humans. And R13-butene diol specifically has leptin sensitizing uh, effect on the pituitary gland. So that in and of itself is enough to show the effect, the hormonal effect, the satiety effects, and obviously then there is the psychological side, which, you know, someone has to obviously work on it on, on their own. Um, my last question to you is that, um, actually, before I go to my last question, to just add a little bit more on, on you know, brain preferred fuel being ketones, did you know that the heart as well, when given ketones, they will take up ketones proportional to the availability of ketones without affecting the rest of the uh, substrate uptakes. In fact, the heart will prefer ketones. Yeah, ex exactly. Yep, I thought that you were going to get to that. Um, uh, Gary Lopachuk's lab at, uh, in Alberta, he, I believe he was the first to show this, so we're going from BC to Alberta now. Yeah. Um, he found that the failing heart, as you were just mentioning, I cut you off, will shift its fuel utilization to rely on ketones. And ketones have been shown in other studies to improve um, uh, e ejection fraction, so yeah. the, the actual contractility and the volume that's being ejected, which is what's failing in heart failure, will improve. Ketones are a better fuel for the heart. Yeah, absolutely. My my whole PhD was based on Gary Lopashuk's uh, method of isolated heart perfusion. So oh, I know brilliant. his work very well. I've been I I you know reference his work a lot in my thesis. And he's just such a gentleman. I just have to say, I'm always delighted when I meet one of these guys, and they're just he is just such a good guy. I'm trying to get him on this podcast. I actually um, one of his I think his postdoc or his student reached out to buy some exogenous ketones. And I asked, can I have Gary on the podcast? Because that's like... I'll uh, give you a discount. This is what you do. You got to leverage it. If you can get me Gary, I'll give you a discount. That's what you right. say. Right. <laughs> 
regardless, I'll still give a discount. I mean, our goal is to get Kichon IQ in as many researchers' hands as possible because we want to know the science. We want to know the effects because now more than ever, we are seeing so many different types of ketone, uh, exogenous ketones in the market that it's confusing. It's starting to get confusing. It's like, you know, having whey protein, casein, having uh, um, branch chain amino acid. They're all amino acids. Like, which one is what? When do you use what? We just want to go out there and show the world what the ketone IQ does, you know, and, and backed by independent researchers that is not paid by HVM. And so um, that's great. So the last bit I want to ask you is about ketone as signaling molecule. The last time I heard about ketone as signaling molecule was at Metabolic Health Summit last year. Uh, John Newman was talking about beta hydroxybutyrylation of BHB having direct effect on the DNA itself and hence affecting transcription, translates, translation, and so on. So what's your take of ketone as a metabolite, as a signaling molecule? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think it's a, a very important part of understanding the benefit of ketones. I will, I will say that it's not, um, it's not utterly unique. Um, there are, we know that nutrients to varying degrees do uh, have an ability to um, bind extracellular receptors and induce uh, a signal. Um, ketones uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate in particular, is known to bind and activate a certain class of G-protein-coupled receptor. And when they activate the G-protein-coupled receptor through a pathway of adenylate cyclase and protein kinase A, will induce the transcription of genes that increase mitochondrial biogenesis and, importantly, for the work I mentioned from my own lab earlier, inducing the expression of uncoupling protein 1. This is, in, in fat cells, that is what makes metabolic rate go so high. Importantly, that does not appear to be a signaling effect that occurs in muscle, where you would not want uncoupling. And, and we've published papers on that, how ketones, when, when, when muscles are exposed to ketones, they actually have a more tightly coupled mitochondria. The mitochondria work more efficiently, and there's less oxidative stress produced. We published that work a few years ago. The opposite happens in, in fat cells, where they get less efficient, which sounds like a problem, but if you're talking about fat cells, actually ends up being beneficial. That's when the fat cell is just burning energy for no good reason. And we, we believe all of this is mediated through surface G-protein-coupled receptors. Now, you'd mentioned that the, the, the kind of alteration of the DNA directly. I have That's not my area. We've only looked at the ability of the ketones to bind and activate cell surface receptors in the form of uh, G-protein-coupled receptors. Nice. Thank you so much. Um, and then we've got a bonus section for, for you who are listening uh, or who are watching. Um, we are recording here on February 1st, 2023. Um, the, there was a section of CBS 60 Minutes where Dr. Fatima Cody was interviewed. Um, she's a doctor from Stanford, and she made a claim that obesity is caused by first and foremost genetics, uh, meaning to say it's almost... I like the premise of how they, 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 they form the perspective that, oh, it's not the person's fault. But then when you say that it's not the person's fault, there's nothing they can do either uh, when you say it's genetic. So what's your take on that? Yeah, I thought that was unfortunate um, uh, because f for multiple reasons, uh, scientifically because it's simply not true. Um, there, uh, the instances of true genetic-induced obesity are very uncommon. 
Uh, these, these are instances when a person has a mutation in leptin, for example. And, and, and as a child, they may get to 200 pounds by the time they're eight years old. Or they may have a mutate. More common than leptin is a mutation in um, a melanocortin signaling within the brain, MC4R, or pro-opio-melanocortin production. So there are a handful of instances where that single mutation results in, you know, like I would say catastrophic obesity in childhood and for life. Um, those are very, very uncommon. Other than that, there's no clear genetic pattern to obesity. Now, we do know that there's certainly a familial tendency to these where one family just happens to just gain fat more easily than another family. But even then, and, and if, if that is what she meant, then I can, I can sort of say, yeah, yeah, okay, that's not what she said. Um, but if, if she meant that there's a familial pattern to, to fat gain and predisposition towards fat gain, I could say, yeah, that's an, that is an accurate statement. But the way it was expressed was that it is genetic and thus there's nothing you can do. Uh, that I disagree with um, completely. I mean, as, as strongly as I can, and, and while being polite, I, I disagree with that sentiment. There is no clear genetic disposition or pattern in people that have even familial tendencies to gain weight. Even then, we, we can't put our finger on, oh, it's this mutation, this mutation, or this gene, this gene, this gene. It's multifaceted. It's, it, it's, much, more, it's much more than that. But even still, it completely ignores the environmental effect here. Um, that even if someone has a familial predisposition to gaining weight, telling them that it is hopeless is, is utterly counterproductive and, and, and very, very unfortunate because it, it totally ignores the fact that, that a human has the ability to make choices. And we know that people can lose weight. We know that people can lose a fantastic amount of weight and keep it off indefinitely. What do we say to them, uh, that, that they don't exist, that, that they're a black swan? It's impossible. Well, the black swans do exist. Um, so I, I thought it was a very unfortunate viewpoint. Um, and it's also at a deeper philo philosophical level, which, which I worry might have been part of the point, is this growing, this creeping philosophy that, um, that nothing, that, that we aren't in charge and we can't be responsible for ourselves. As a father... I that is like the worst form of parenting. You know, if I were to tell my kids, uh, nothing you do matters, everything just happens to you, and you on your own are incapable of eliciting any change in your own life or anyone else's. What a horrific and depressing point of view. Yeah, you you born and you're given these cards and you just have yes. to deal with that. Yes, what a depressing view. And, and again, I worry that that is that that is her statements reflect a growing trend in the modern world of no accountability. And I reject that premise completely. And you know what's interesting too? What's interesting is that they make it seem like, okay, it's genetics. It's not the exercise. It's not the food. You know, it's nothing wrong with you. It's just you're born with the genetics. But then at the end, they said, however, there is this drug that may actually give you what you need, semaglutide, you know, ozempic, and, and showing these patients being super happy that they lost weight or they, they kept their weight off. But also a small section, I think, and they mentioned just once, they're like, okay, this patient kept her weight off, but she still has to maintain nutrition and exercise. And I was like, hmm, that is sort of... It rejects the premise. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I, I, my hope is that anyone who watched that was, was, was just shocked. Um, even if someone struggles with weight, 
I, I cannot fathom they would enjoy hearing that there's nothing they can do about it. That is such a depressing view, and it is not correct. I mean, philosophically, I can disagree with it, but scientifically, it is simply not accurate. I really disagree with the fact that they are playing around the insecurity and emotions of, of segregating people. They are pointing, they are painting the picture of, you know, these people who are obese versus people who are not obese and that these people are always discriminated and all that and biased. I do not deny that. I have been overweight all my life when, you know, until I was 22. I was born in a family with high prevalence of obesity and diabetes. I have seen that happen. Growing up, I thought I couldn't do anything because that's who my relatives are. That's, you know, that's what I'm going to be. But not until I learned about metabolism and physiology and all of this and started putting it into practice that I managed to reverse what I thought would be irreversible. So I, I, I really don't like that the way they, they prey onto the insecurity, the way it's like there is there, there are better ways of putting it into perspective. Well, and I would add if, if there's any uh, if there's any area in which I believe a person ha is a little helpless, is just the sheer amount of mis uh, of I hate using the word misinformation now because it's become too loaded of a term um, in po in political circles. But just the sheer amount of bad information, misguided, yeah, good, good, uh, where where people are told um, they've we've been saying for decades that obesity is uh, that the solution to obesity is simply eat less, exercise more, and if it were that simple, the problem would have been over by now. But to, to just illustrate how problematic that view is, let me just sort of present a ridiculous scenario. I, imagine if all of us, you and I in the audience, were invited to this extravagant restaurant. And we had been told that we will have the world's best chefs preparing the most delicious foods. And it's a buffet. Come as hungry as possible so that we can all enjoy all of the food we want. What would we do to make sure we went to this buffet as hungry as possible? We would, in the days preceding this event, we would eat less and we would exercise more. And indeed, it would work. We would go to this glorious buffet very, very hungry. But that's, therein lies the problem. Those, that two-step process of stimulating hunger for the sake of enjoying eating ourselves sick is the exact advice we've been giving people for decades on how to lose weight. And so in that regard, I, I relate to what she said because I also have very much a high degree of empathy for people who struggle with weight because they've been given bad information. And, and, and that is not their fault. That is truly a, a tragedy of just how information is identified as good or bad and then how it is disseminated. And I believe that the entire conversation around obesity since the mid-1900s has been based on a faulty premise that it is just a matter of restricting calories and thus you should restrict fat the most. I think by ignoring the role of the endocrine system, namely insulin, we cannot have a full picture of obesity and thus we cannot hope to truly effectively present solutions to people who struggle with it. Absolutely. Very, very well said. And I think more and more people are realizing now, especially physicians, the, you know, integrative holistic physicians who are, you know, qualified doctors, but they are looking at this problem at a more wholesome manner, at a more um, 
holistic manner where you are looking at endocrine system, you're looking at lifestyle, you're looking at psychology, um, psychological state, you're looking at addiction problems and how you deal and tackle this problem from a multimodal point of view. I think that to us is important because there's no not one thing that leads us to this pandemic or epidemic of, of obesity and diabetes and cardiovascular disease. It's, you know, metabolism, metabolism is more complicated than that. It's not as linear as we think. It's not as simple as we think. And therefore, we need to also solve the problem by thinking in a more sophisticated manner. Yep, well said. All right. <laughs> well, it has been such a pleasure. I know we are slightly, um, you know, over time here, but it has been such a pleasure, Ben. Um, love talking um, science with you. And it's great to connect with fellow scientists, basic scientists, to really drill down on the mechanism of actions on the, the proved data out there and evidence-based um, um, research. Um, and um, welcome back to HVMM Podcast. And we will definitely have you soon once you, you know, have more results published. Oh, my pleasure. This was wonderful. Thanks for having me on again.